Well, I'm wondering if any of you have ever gotten a weird Christmas gift um, or given a weird Christmas gift. I mean, you didn't intend it to be weird, but it ended up being weird. It, some of you some of you know what that gift is already. You've got it in your mind that either you gave or you got from somebody. When Deb and I were first married, I, uh, I had a really bad run of awful, useless gifts. Birthday, anniversary, Christmas, I just horrible sweaters, um, awful jewelry. I, I just... I. Finally, Deb just said to me, stop. Just, just, it's better if you just don't give me anything than to keep giving me the things that you give me. Um, so she said, you know, just give up. I, I heard a guy tell a story about uh, the strangest gift his dad ever gave his mom for Christmas. It was a DVD. Now that's not, you know, DVD, that's not, that's not so strange. But number one, it was a rental. Okay, a rental. Number two, they didn't even own a DVD player. <laughs> so that was a weird gift. So as Dave said in this teaching series leading up to Christmas, we're looking at these three unusual gifts that were presented by the wise men to Jesus. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh. So first, what do we know about the wise men? Oh, I actually have a picture of the wise men that I brought, okay? Um, so we, we think we know a few things. There were three of them, right? They were kings. I mean, we sing it. We three kings of Orient are, right? Uh, they wore crowns and bathrobes. They rode what? Camels. And they visited the baby Jesus at the stable, right? Now... What do we really know? To be honest, not much. Matthew, he's the only one that writes about the wise men in the New Testament. He tells us that they came from the east and they brought three gifts. That's it. Three gifts. But that doesn't mean that there were just three wise men. It may have been a rather large caravan of people including a small army or even a bunch of bodyguards, something that would be threatening enough that King Herod would be kind of nervous. I mean, three bearded guys riding camels wearing bathrobes isn't enough to really make the king feel nervous. And then secondly, they weren't kings. They were king makers. They were called magi. And they probably came from Persia or Arabia or maybe India, not the Orient, and they were from a, uh, a religious tribe of astrologers. And part of what they did is they acknowledged who were to be the next kings. And then the third thing, they didn't show up on the night that Jesus was born. They came later, probably even two years later. Which means that Jesus was a toddler. He was living in a house, not a stable. So when you set up your nativity next year at your home, you might want to move the wise men about like 
six blocks away, okay? If you want to be accurate, because uh, it took them a while to get there. Also, the gifts they brought, they weren't just really nice, expensive gifts. They were also symbolic or representative of the roles that they believed that Jesus would play. The gold was to announce that Jesus would be a king. And that's exactly who the wise men were looking for when they asked King Herod for directions. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews, they asked. And then they also gave Jesus frankincense, which was used by the priests in the temple in Jerusalem and pointed to the the high priestly role that Jesus would play. And then there was the third gift, the gift of myrrh. Now let's let's look at the story again. Matthew chapter 2. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. I'm going to read from the the paraphrase of the message. Here's what Matthew says. Instructed by the king, they set off. Then the star appeared again, the same star they had seen in the eastern skies. It led them on until it hovered over the place of the child. They could hardly contain themselves. They were in the right place. They had arrived at the right time. They entered the house, and they saw the child in the arms of Mary, his mother. Overcome, they kneeled and worshipped him. Then they opened their luggage and presented gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. So, what was that last gift? What was myrrh, and why should Dave's grandchildren care? about it. All right, the use of myrrh goes back probably like two to 6,000 years BC before Jesus was born. It it actually comes from a tree, this ugly, low-lying, thorny tree that's found throughout the, the Middle East. This is what it looks like. And the sap from that tree gave off a very pleasant smell, and it hardened into a resin. And that's That's myrrh. Now, how was it used? Myrrh was used several different ways in the ancient times. First of all, it was used as a beauty treatment. When Esther was brought before the king in the Old Testament book of Esther, we read that she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. Ha! I mean, a whole year of beauty treatments. I mean, talk about the ultimate spa experience, right? So myrrh is a beauty product. Secondly, it was a perfume. Psalm 45 notes that the king's robes were fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. And in the Song of Solomon... When his fiance comes riding towards him, King Solomon sings out, who is this coming up? I don't actually know the lyrics. I mean, the the melody, I'm just going to speak it. Who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke perfumed with myrrh and incense made from all the spices of a merchant? You know, it might be a bad idea, but I'm thinking about getting my wife myrrh for Christmas. <laughs> let, me, let me know what you think. 
So myrrh was a beauty treatment. It was a perfume. And then the third use was as an analgesic, uh, a painkiller. And it's still recommended today in certain parts of the world for toothaches and sprains and minor, minor aches and pains. And it was used in the Bible that way too. In fact, as Jesus hung on the cross, beaten, suffocating to death, experiencing the most excruciating pain, the soldiers offered to him wine mixed with myrrh to deaden the pain. But he refused it. As Jesus prepared to take on the weight of the sin of the world, he refused to have the pain deadened and chose instead to feel every single ounce of that pain. So it was a painkiller. And then the fourth use is a modern use. Myrrh is used as an antiseptic. In many parts of the world, it's used in mouthwashes and toothpaste, and it even prevents gum disease. Nine out of ten dentists <laughs> recommend myrrh. But the fifth use, fifth use is really the one that I want to talk about, and it is especially relevant this morning. It, it was used, myrrh was used to embalm bodies, to treat the dead. We read in John 19, Gospel of John, that Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took Jesus' body after he had died, took it down from the cross, and prepared it for burial with a mixture of myrrh and aloes. The same substance found at the beginning of Jesus' life is also found at the end of Jesus' life. Myrrh was presented to him after his birth. Myrrh was present after his death. Ancient Hebrew rabbis associated myrrh with sacrificial death. And let me explain why. The ancient word for myrrh is also the name of the place in the book of Genesis, where Abraham was commanded by God to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, on Mount Moriah, or the mountain of Myrrh. So for ancient Hebrew rabbis, the word myrrh was associated with death, and especially the death of a son sacrificed by his father. Now, Mount Moriah shows up again in the Bible, but many books later, in the New Testament, in the story of Jesus, Mount Moriah is the same place where Jesus was sacrificed by his Father for the sins of the world. So it's no wonder that scholars see the gift of myrrh to the child Jesus as being symbolic of his sacrificial death. So now imagine that you are Mary or Joseph, Jesus' parents, and one day you hear this knock on the door, 
and you open it, expecting maybe a neighbor or, or one of your friends, and instead there's this small army of, of, of foreigners. Looks like they're from the east. And they say, we have some gifts for your son. And they first give you gold. And you're like, okay, this will be handy. Or, or maybe you're thinking, you know, you're kind of embarrassed. And you're thinking, oh, this, is, this is way too much. But you receive it graciously because they insist. And then they give you frankincense. And you understand that it's a very expensive incense that the priests use in the temple. But then they unwrap this last gift. And you don't know what to say. Oh, embalming spice. How lovely. Thank you. Because you know that even though myrrh has a lot of uses, it's mostly used to treat the dead. But that's what the angel said to Mary. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And how would he do that? How would he save people from their sin? Well, the only way the Jews believed sins could be forgiven was through a sacrifice. The writers of the Old Testament tell us that forgiveness of sin requires blood. Something needed to die. Blood must be shed. Our blood, had it not been for a Savior who was willing to go to the place where myrrh was used most, the place of death, this child was born to die. Now, Jesus could be born to be our king. He could be born to be our high priest. But to be our savior, he had to die. I know, this is really shaping up to be a very Merry Christmas message, isn't it? But I want you to stay with me because this, this is really important. And I want you to hear and I want you to understand this. No one is saved by Jesus' life by his example, or by his words. We are saved by Jesus' death and resurrection. Salvation comes only when we recognize that Jesus took our place on a cross and died for us. And then he conquered sin and death by the resurrection from the dead. So remember this. You may find that Jesus' words challenge, inspire comfort, convict you. You may see the example of Jesus' life as a guide for how you can live your life, but salvation only comes through Jesus' death and resurrection. See, we all know the Christmas story. We know about the manger. We know about the shepherds. We know about the singing angels. We know about the wise men. But do we know the rest of the story? The rest of the story is that Jesus was the only baby ever born with a distinct purpose of dying. That's the part of the story most people overlook at Christmas. Unless we see the shadow of the cross falling on the crib, 
we don't see the crib clearly at all. The purpose of the crib was the cross. It's important that we know that. Jesus dying on the cross was not plan B. That wasn't a divine oops. God didn't go, oh, that wasn't supposed to happen. No, it was always supposed to happen. God planned it that way from the very beginning. Jesus is called in the last book in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. There's this painting by a guy named Holman Hunt from the 1870s, and it's called The Shadow of Death. And it's a painting of Jesus at home in Nazareth at the carpentry shop that he took over for his dad, Joseph. The late afternoon sunlight is streaming into the shop, and, and Jesus is stretching his tired muscles after a long day's work, wood shavings lying at his feet, and a shadow is cast on the back wall where Jesus' tools hang, some nails, maybe a hammer or two. You can see it, can't you? I mean, the image is, is unmistakable. You see his body on the cross. To Jesus' right is, is his mother Mary. She kneels in front of what appears to be a a treasure chest that she holds open, and in that chest rests the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. As Mary gazes up to see the shadow of her son, a foreshadow of his death, this painter understood that the cross cast a long shadow throughout history. Shadow begins at the crib. This child was born to die. It makes you wonder how much did Mary know? What did she know about the fate of her son? At what point did she did she gasp? Oh now I get it. Did she know that her baby boy would grow up and go to the cross and take away our sins? At what point did Mary know? She was given hints all along the way. That first hint was when that angel said to her, you'll call his name Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. And then the second hint came when they brought Jesus to the temple to be dedicated, and that old man, Simeon, took Jesus in his arms he was so happy to finally see the Messiah. And then he said to Mary and Joseph, this child will be rejected by many and it will be their undoing. But he will bring the greatest joy to others. And then he turned to Mary and he said, but a sword will pierce your very soul. How would you like to hear that at your child's dedication service? Your child's going to be rejected. And you, mom, are going to feel immense pain, which she did when she saw her son crucified. And then the third hint 
is the third gift, the gift of myrrh. I mean, what a, what a thing for the wise men to suggest. Your child is here to die. When children are born, parents think about life, not death. We have hopes and dreams, plans for the future, who our children are going to be, what, what will be important to them, who they're going to spend their life with. But to think about death? Author Max Lucado imagines that Mary understood this. And the night that Jesus was born, she offers a prayer. And he calls it Mary's Prayer. And this is what he writes. God, O infant God, heaven's fairest child, conceived by the union of divine grace with our disgrace, sleep well. Sleep well. Bask in the coolness of this night, bright with diamonds. Sleep well, for the heat of anger simmers nearby. Enjoy the silence of the crib, for the noise of confusion rumbles in your future. Savor the sweet safety of my arms, for a day is soon coming when I cannot protect you. And rest well, tiny hands, for though you belong to a king, you will touch no satin, own no gold. You will grasp no pen, guide no brush. No, your tiny hands are reserved for works more precious. To touch a leper's open wound, to wipe a widow's weary tear, to claw the ground of Gethsemane. Your hands, so tiny, so white, clutched tonight in an infant's fist. They aren't destined to hold a scepter nor wave from a palace balcony. They are reserved instead for a Roman spike that will staple them to a Roman cross. Sleep deeply, tiny eyes. Sleep while you can, for soon the blurriness will clear and, and you will see the mess we have made of your world. You will see our nakedness, for we cannot hide. You will see our selfishness, for we cannot give. You will see our pain, for we cannot heal. Oh, eyes that will see hell's darkest pit and witness her ugly prince sleep. Please sleep. Sleep while you can. Lie still, tiny mouth. Lie still, mouth from which eternity will speak. Tiny tongue that will soon summon the dead, that will define grace, that will silence our foolishness. Rosebud lips upon which ride a star-born kiss of forgiveness to those who believe you and of death to those who deny you. Lie still. And tiny feet, cupped in the palm of my hand, rest. For many difficult steps lie ahead for you. Do you taste the dust of the trails you will travel? Do you feel the, the cold seawater upon which you will walk? Do you wrench at the invasion of the nail you will bear? Do you fear, fear the steep descent down the spiral staircase into Satan's domain? Rest, tiny feet. Rest today so that tomorrow you might walk with power. Rest, for millions will follow in your steps. And little heart, holy heart, pumping the blood of life through the universe, how many times will we break you 
You'll be torn by the thorns of our accusations. You'll be ravaged by the cancer of our sins. You'll be crushed under the weight of your own sorrow. You'll be pierced by the spear of our rejection. Yet in that piercing, in that ultimate ripping of muscle and membrane, in that final rush of blood and water, you will find rest. Your hands will be freed. Your eyes will see justice. Your lips will smile. And your feet will carry you home. And there you'll rest again, this time in the embrace of your Father. The gift of myrrh for the one born for the purpose of dying, Jesus, the Savior of the world. Here's one last thing. Myrrh was a substance that gave off its best fragrance, its best scent when it was crushed. Does that sound familiar? Isaiah, in the Old Testament, prophesied about the coming Messiah, and this is what he wrote. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that was, that brought, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, We are healed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, for the gift of your son Jesus to the world, we give you thanks. And as we prepare to celebrate this Christmas, with family, with friends, with people that we love, as we celebrate with joy and full hearts, as we share gifts and receive gifts from others, may we also remember this sacrificial gift that you gave to the world, that you sent your son to earth to die for us, so that we could live both now and forever. Thank you, God, for this costly gift, the gift of Jesus. And it's in his name, the name of the Savior, that we pray.